Amen. Let them know. Well, let's take our Bibles. Turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 17 tonight. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. We'll read just a verse or so, and then we'll kind of get kicked off here, and maybe we'll have a word of prayer to kick things off so I don't have to look back once we start. I was uh, preaching at that conference uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago, and I realized about halfway through the sermon, I never prayed a lick. I just got right into things. I figured they did enough praying for all of us, right? It's like, how many times do we have to pray for God to get in on it? You know? I'm not joking either. I think sometimes, you know, we stand and we pray in a pulpit just because that's what's expected us to do. You know, that's just how you do it, you know? You have that prayer, but if it don't mean nothing to you, then you're wasting your time and everybody else's. You know, and I think sometimes we do things just because it's tradition. But, uh, you know, obviously I would hope that I prayed before I ever got up here. You know, I mean, if I have to pray, you know, the power of God on me, the moment I'm praying with you, then I probably am in real trouble. Right? Okay, now again, I, I know it's, there's nothing wrong with praying. And we teach Bible college students, man, you get up there, you do your text, then you say a prayer, and then you, okay, I get that. But if you haven't done some praying and plenty of it before you get up there, then that prayer is probably a waste of time. I'm not, I'm not saying any time you pray is never a waste, but you know where I'm going with that. So anyway, let's go ahead and pray now before we even get started. And that way I don't forget, okay? You know, I come out of my office praying, you know? It's like, oh, Lord, you're going to have to help me today, oh, God. And then I get up here and I think, well, I've already prayed, <laughs> you know? So anyway, let's go ahead and do it now, right, for the sake of all of us. Well, Lord, we do come to you, and again, we are praying because we want to, not because we feel we have to tonight. We're praying because we know that if anything great is going to be done in a life, if anything good is going to be accomplished in this place, it's going to have to be you. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be uh, just uh, the way it's presented. It has to be the Holy Spirit driving home a truth from your word. We're praying, Father, that you would just work and move in our lives, that you would just speak to our hearts, that you'd do a miracle, Lord, in each of our lives, even tonight. Thank you for that song, Lord. Let them know how important is that. And Or just a quartet that sang earlier as well. Lord, we're so blessed with great music. And Father, we thank you how it can praise you and how it elevates you, magnifies and glorifies you. But we're also grateful how it prepares our hearts for this time of the service. We ask that now we would truly open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to you. Be glorified, Lord. May the simple truth of this message truly make an impact and a difference in our lives. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, begin in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. The Bible says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, we're going to be dealing with the Apostle Paul, and we know that he had a unique and a very special relationship with those that he had led to Christ, those that he had made an impact in their lives in. And in this particular case, we're going to see that Miletus was a city of considerable size and importance. Ephesus was about 30 miles away from there, and now Paul is, a, is summoning. He's asking for the elders or the, the leaders of F, the Ephesian church there to meet him to come out here now to Miletus and to meet him. It's about a three- or four-day journey, and he figures that's about what it'll take them. If he has to make the journey, of course, he's going to journey three or four days and then have to journey three or four more days back. There's a good likelihood that he's going to get stuck there for a little while as well. I mean, let's face it, they're not going to want him to show up after a three- or four-day journey and not stick around, preach, and teach, and maybe spend some time fellowshipping. So he knows that this three or four days is going to turn into probably a long time. Not only that, but he's probably a little concerned that maybe, just maybe, some more riots just might break out if he shows up on the scene. So he asked for the elders here in Ephesus to come see him, to come meet him. And we pick up in verse 18, he goes on to say, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. 
Again, he had ministered in Ephesus for probably two and a half years. And the first three months there as he ministered, he ministered in the synagogue. But then he kind of, uh, he, he, he would ultimately, as we're going to see, uh, expand that ministry and expand his influence there. But he started originally in the synagogue. His life, an open book. And now he challenges the Ephesian elders to take a look at that book, to examine that book. He had taken a very humble position, and he had taken a humble place as a servant. He, he truly served in a lowly fashion, this apostle Paul did. Of all the men of God that we read about in the New Testament, Paul the apostle would probably be one of the greatest of all. And yet when we recognize his ministry, we realize his ministry, we see a man who is humble, yielded, submitted, surrendered unto not only God, but others. He's never been haughty. He's never been proud. He never lorded over the Ephesians in any way, shape, or form. He had always taken a humble place. He had demonstrated what he called the mind of Christ. And the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, who humbled himself. If there was an attribute, the Apostle Paul's that stood out, at least in my mind as I read through the New Testament, it is a humble servant of God. Well, what a wonderful thing it is to learn to be a humble servant. It goes totally contrary to the flesh. It goes totally contrary to our carnal self. But the humble servant attitude that the Apostle Paul reflects and shows is beyond comprehension to most of us, considering what a big-time preacher he was. Again, he had set an example before them, an example of godly sorrow. He had frequently shared his tears with them as they wept over hurts and heartaches, as they dealt with sin, and he wept over their sin, his goal, his desire, his longing to see them grow in Christ and become everything that God intended them to be. And so he just continued to bear precious seed. And he says, my record speaks for itself. I want you to look at my life. I want you to evaluate my ministry. Now listen, that's a scary thing, and in most cases, we don't want to be open books. We don't want to be glass houses. We don't want people examining our lives and really looking into our hearts. But let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul realized that it was important that they understood that his credentials were clean and clear, that he indeed was everything he claimed to be, that his message was not only true, but he lived the message he preached. And so he says, hey, go ahead. I want you to check out the record. I want you to look at it. And you know, interestingly enough, he was determined. I mean, he was not about to let any element of persecution sidetrack him from what he was to accomplish. As a matter of fact, he, he says, listen, you know my heart and you know what I wanted to accomplish. You know how I was convinced of what God wanted for me and for you. And he says, ye know, in verse 18, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. Ye know. I don't have to tell you. You've looked at my life. You've looked at my ministry. You've seen it for yourselves. In verse 20 and 21, he continues by saying, Testify both to the Jews and also so wait a second, yeah, 20 and 21, I'm sorry. And how, how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, he says, but have shewed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice that phrase, kept back, or that expression. He says, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable. And again, we've looked at this in the past before as we've done some study in this same passage and area, but this comes from Luke's medical vocabulary, this word, this phrase. It's a word, hupostello, and it's a word used to mean withholding food from patients. So a doctor may withhold food from a patient for the purpose of helping them to regain health or strength in some means. And again, we understand that without food, you don't get very strong, but maybe in this particular case, it was helpful to the patient to withhold that, that, that food. Well, Paul had never done that. Paul had never kept back anything. 
He says in the passage that he, he kept back nothing that was profitable for them. He had always spread a full table. He had always set them up and prepared them the whole counsel of God. This was Paul's way. Now, you know, he never hesitated to give them exactly what they needed when they needed it, even if it was not something that they were really, really happy to hear about. I mean, he was willing to tell them things that were unpleasant. He was willing to give them facts and truth from the word of God that may be very difficult to handle or unpalatable. And yet he gave it to them. He held back nothing. He kept back nothing that was profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. He never did that. He goes on to say, I've showed you and have taught you. He showed them and he taught them, both by his lip and his life, by exposition and by example. Paul himself was a living epistle to these folks at Ephesus. Are you a living epistle at work? Are you a living epistle in your home? Are you a living epistle at school? I mean, do people see you and say, that is God, that's Jesus Christ-likeness. That's the word of God being lived out before me. That's how it ought to be in our lives. It ought to be so clear and so easy to see that there's something uniquely different about us. Uniquely different. And that was indeed the case with the Apostle Paul. He goes on to express his method. How did he give this information? How did he share this, this, uh, this meal, if you will, that he shared with the people there constantly? He said he did it publicly and from house to house. Publicly and from house to house. We know that first of all, he did it publicly in the synagogue. We already noted that earlier when uh, we said that he spent the first three months there in the synagogue. But then the Bible gives us, uh, it makes it clear that he spent some time in the school of Tyrannus. There he would go ahead and teach as well. So he did it publicly. But then also he taught privately. It's obvious and it's pretty clear based on the scriptures as we read through the whole passages, not just in that area but others throughout the book of Acts, that he would go from door to door, from house to house. I got to believe there was not a home or a house in Ephesus that had not seen or heard the knock of the Apostle Paul. Someone says, well, that would have been a lot of work. Exactly. His method was extremely simple. Go to where the people are. Don't expect them to come to you. I mean, isn't that really what missions is about? Going to the people? Can I make a statement, something that stands very, in my mind, it's very important. If you're not a missionary here, you don't belong on the foreign field. You can't win souls in America, don't think you're going to go overseas and win them. If you can't build something in America, don't think you're going to go build something overseas. The first questions I would ask missionaries when I used to receive all the calls, and I don't receive all the calls anymore. But when I did that, I used to ask the first question, how many souls have you led to Christ this year? Because before we invest our finances as good stewards, we want to make sure it's being well spent. This Apostle Paul, it was well, a a good investment. (laughs) I wish I could have got in on the early investment there. That'd be kind of like, Microsoft, way back then. Or, or what was that one uh, company, uh, Hewlett Packard, back in the day when they came out with the first CPUs and small computers and it just blew up. Man, the investment and the return on your investment, if you could have invested in the work of the Apostle Paul, amazing, huh? Now, there's a lot of other things going on and I don't have time to discuss it, but Let's face it, we're at the latter end of the New Testament church, it appears, and who knows how much longer before the rapture. However, you know, we notice those that went out and labored in the 11th hour, they had the same reward as those that labored in the beginning hours. So I don't want to go into all of that, but I got a feeling that if we'll make the right investment today, we'll see the same reward that they do. His method was simple. Go where the people are. Don't expect them to come to you. 
He saw every man, every woman, every boy, every girl as a mission field. He had no respect of persons. Didn't matter to him what color or creed, race or religion. Everybody was somebody for whom Christ had died. Everybody needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody needed a word from God. His message was to the point. Repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance has become a bad word today. And I don't say a bad word in our church, but it's become a bad word, it seems, in some of these blogs and all these different media outlets. You got people today that are saying, if you're saying that repentance is uh, something that's uh, good or needful in any way, shape, or form, then it's not grace that's saving people. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. He brought everyone face to face with the character of God and who God was. And he said, listen, you're going to have to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Verse 22 says, and now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Paul had desired to go to Jerusalem before but he had not been permitted to. Now he's going to Jerusalem, but he was going, as he says, bound in the Spirit. Not only was he firmly resolved to go, but he was under a kind of spiritual constraint to go. He felt that he had to go. He just must make that endeavor, must make that trip. He had the authority of the Holy Spirit behind him now. And in verse 23, he goes on to mention, he says, save that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He knew that he was in for a hard time, a difficult time, a rough time. He understood that the moment he arrives in Jerusalem, his life is on the line. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God had made that clear to him. And yet the Apostle Paul was determined to go. Although he knew what awaited him, although he was very clear that it was going to be difficult, he said to himself, and he determined in his heart and mind, I'm going to go. He was an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was bound in the Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit ever spoke to your heart and you knew without a doubt what you needed to do? I mean, if you heard that still small voice and literally knew this was the Lord speaking to my heart, this isn't just some whim, internal whim. This isn't my own desire. This isn't some emotional outburst. This is really, truly the voice of God moving me, binding me. Where's that kind of relationship today? That kind of intimacy that produces a confidence and a courage. Paul the Apostle knew it would not be a cakewalk. It wouldn't be a walk through the tulips. He knew it was going to be a difficult journey and a tough time, yet he still went. In verse 24, he says, But none, none of these things move me, he says. None of them. None of them moved me. It's amazing when we think about what moved the Apostle Paul. What motivated him. What fired him up. The love of Christ moved him. His love for God and the Lord Jesus Christ moved him. And his passion for souls moved him. Even though he knew that a hard time awaited him, he was willing to go anyway. Hmm. That's interesting. He would have another 10 years of ministry before Nero finally ended his life. But due to his desire and his determination to go to Jerusalem, he would spend the majority of it in prison. And although that may seem bad and negative and horrible even, much of what we read today is a result of his prison work. None of these things move me, he says. 
So it wasn't fear of fate or it wasn't the concern for life or liberty. It was his great desire to reach the lost and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he was moved by a much higher calling than self-preservation or even material gain. Let's be honest. If every time you went out soul winning, you received $50, how many times a week would you go? How many times would I go? Especially if it was just supplementing my income. Can you imagine? And you've only got to go for maybe an hour, hour and a half. 50 bucks. I bet you we couldn't keep enough money in the kitty to pay everybody. We'd be poor within a week. Again, I'm not being critical of you any more than I'm being critical of me. But I do believe sometimes we are moved by the wrong motivations. The Apostle Paul was not moved by money. We know this. As a matter of fact, it seems that he was rather bivocational for his, most of his career. He wasn't receiving a paycheck from the churches, although he did receive gifts from time to time, but it appears that in most cases, he passed those along. I wonder how many missionaries would go to the field if they had to fend for themselves and not receive a dime from anybody. I wonder how many pastors would start churches in America today if they weren't being supported by somebody or some church. What moves us today? What moves you? What keeps you coming to church? I mean, is it simply because of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, your longing for the Word of God, the, 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 the need to breathe in the Word of God because it's like fresh air to your soul? Or is it so somebody doesn't point a finger and say, where have you been? What's wrong with you? Your spiritual life waxing and waning? Are you backslidden now? I don't want anybody to think that. To be honest with you, I believe we ought to do right even when we don't feel like it. Until we do feel like it. I think you just ought to be faithful to the Lord even if you don't feel like it. I think you ought to go to church when you don't feel like it. I think you ought to open your Bible and read it when you don't feel like it. I'm convinced you ought to pray when you don't feel like it. Someone says, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Then just go ahead and be backslidden. Just go ahead and give up, throw your hands in the air, and be done with it. What moves you, though? Everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a bad week, maybe. Some people have bad years. <laughs> Seems like it to me. Somebody had bad decades. But just keep on going. One day it'll all end. You'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for all those bad days, weeks, months, years, decades, if that's what you consider them. But at least make sure you're doing the right things and not the wrong. Commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established, he says. If you'll commit your works to him, he'll begin to affect your thoughts. You know, years ago, I... Uh, I got in a bad way, you know, when it came to soul winning. It was an early on in the ministry, and I, I got thinking about, church, about the, the soul winning. And, man, I was going out knocking doors all the time, and I was trying to win people to Christ. And, and the Lord started blessing, and things were going good. And all of a sudden, the devil got in there and said, so why are you really doing it? Why are you really out there knocking those doors? It's probably so you can grow a church. It's probably so you can get a big name, be a big guy, you know? Why are you really winning souls? Why are you really doing that? Man, I started questioning my motivation. And I started thinking, man, am I, I got the wrong motives, you know? Is it really? Is, am I doing this just because I care about souls? Am I doing it because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to obey him? Or am I doing it because I do want to build a church and I want to do something great and I do want to be well-known and I do... You get where I'm going? 
You'd never think that, but I started thinking that about me. Man, all of a sudden, you know what the Lord told me? Here's, here's what he told me. And it wasn't like that I was sitting down one day and the Lord tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, by the way, Mark, let me tell you what. But he, in my heart of hearts, here's what he told me. He said, you just keep winning souls and let me worry about your motivation. You just keep doing what you know is right and let me worry about why you're doing it. I can fix you. I can fix you. What moves you? What moves me? So what, am I supposed to just quit soul winning, stop, just quit trying to build the ministry because I was concerned about my motives? That's exactly what the devil wanted me to do. And just let the world go to hell while I deal with my conflict, my inner conflict. Now the Lord said, you just go ahead and keep winning souls and let me worry about your motives. You say, I'm not sure why I teach Sunday school. Just keep teaching it and pray and say, God, if there's a, something wrong with my motives, you fix me. By the way, if you're married, just stay married. Let God worry about your motives. Why am I still here? You just stay there. Let God worry about it. How ridiculous does it even sound to bring that up? And yet that's basically what we do when it comes to our relationship with Christ. For another 10 years, he lived, and he continued to serve the master. So he eventually puts it this way in Romans 8, 36. He says that he was a sheep for the slaughter. A sheep for the slaughter. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You know, we talk about the day and age in which we live, and I'm not even preaching the message. I'm just talking. We talk about the day and age in which we live, and honestly, if you think there isn't reason to be alarmed as a believer, you're out of your mind. My wife saw a bumper sticker the other day that talked about fascism, and it said fascism will come from two places. It will come from either, see, let me get it right. What was the one, Sherry? The first one? Someone carrying a flag. What was the second one? <laughs> what? It'll come from someone carrying a flag or someone carrying a cross. That's where fascism will come from. Now, hold on. I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you realize how dangerous that means, the position we hold is? in the eyes of the world in which we live? I mean, fascism? Man, I, that's radical, isn't it? But, but it's going to come from a flag, someone carrying a flag, someone that loves their country, somebody patriotic? Or it's going to be somebody like you and me called a Christian? That's pretty sad, isn't it? And we don't think we got hard days ahead? Hey, what moves you? Because I promise you, if you don't figure that out now, there'll be a tough gut check coming. So what should move us? Well, let me give you just a couple of things in the next 10 or so minutes. Here they are, number one. What should move us? should be a faith that moves us to go. A faith that moves us to go. We read about um, Abraham over there in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, 
and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Well, Abraham believed God, and his faith moved him. He believed God, and his faith moved him. See, a faith that moves us to go is a faith that incorporates our family. It says here that Abraham took Sarai, his wife. Let me tell you, sir, if you're going to be involved in ministry, you've got to bring your wife along with you. You've got to bring your family along with you. Well, you've got to get involved as a family. Listen, faith that moves us to go is a faith that incorporates our family. It's not just a decision I made to start Community Baptist Temple. It's not just a decision that a man makes to go overseas and across the pond in order to serve in another nation or country. Man, it is something that affects his whole family. And if you're going to be a soul winner today, and if you're going to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ in reaching the world with the gospel, whether you are on a staff getting paid to do it, or you're just a good Christian obeying the commands of Scripture, my friend, you better be prepared to bring your family along with you. It incorporates our family, and it motivates others. We think about Lot. He came along for the ride as well i got to believe that as Abraham is sitting around the fire talking about God speaking to him, he begins to share his heart. And he says, man, God's given me a vision. And God's given me direction. And God is speaking to my heart. And Lot says, I went in on that. I want to be a part of that. I'll go. Doesn't matter how it ended in the long run. We know that Lot made some bad decisions. But let me tell you this. Somehow, some way, he had he'd gotten fired up by the vision that God had given to Abraham. See, it motivates others. When we have a faith that moves us to go, it's a faith that incorporates our family. It's a faith that motivates others. And it's a faith that compensates all. The Bible says, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Everybody benefits when we have a faith that moves us to go. It was just a, a week or so ago that Brother Dean, we'd gotten a call in the office and somebody had mentioned that the, somebody was extremely sick and he said, you want to take that and deal with that? And I said, why don't you deal with that? And I knew the person. I'd worked with them at least, I don't know, seven years ago, five years ago, something like that. I said, go ahead, talk to them, see where they're at and then let me know what's going on and I'll see where I want to go with that. Before it was over with, this person said, I'd love you to come by and, and pray uh, and, and, and with my, my father, and my father's not doing well, and, and I, I just am concerned for his soul. I told Brother Dean, I said, you never know, go on over there, make that visit, and talk to that father, and then gather everybody around and give them all the gospel. You might be surprised what will happen. He came back and said, guess what, preacher? Three of them trusted Christ. I'll tell you something, when he knocked on that door that day, he was expecting to talk to one person that may or may not even be coherent, one person that's in a bed, possibly on their deathbed, dying, but instead he had the privilege and opportunity to compensate all. Let me tell you, when you go with the gospel, many, not just the ones often that you go to reach, but all around you are compensated, others are as well. It compensates all. It benefits all. So what do we need? <laughs> what should move us? A faith that moves us to go. A love that moves us to give. See, we need a love that moves us to give. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Got to move very quickly here. Almost like, you know, like it's up to you whether or not we get through the material because, you know, if you don't move fast, we're done, right? <laughs> it's kind of like my wife would be like, what, are you blaming me for this going longer than it's supposed to go here? Uh, no, I'm not really. I just, that's a form of speech we use as preachers to try to let you know that we're aware that we're taking longer than we should. And we want to try to convince you that we're really working hard to move quickly because we don't really want to lie to you. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, 
we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. That's a mouthful, isn't it? For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we should receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, inasmuch, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's exactly what we see these folks and uh, the church doing here. They, they don't have much. They have very little, and yet they are sacrificially giving. Now, a love that moves us will cause us to give self, first and foremost. Verse 5, we notice that he says, and this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. A love that moves us will cause us to give ourselves. We recognize his love for us, and then in return, we love him, and we give ourselves first to him. Long before we pull out a wallet, long before we ever uh, give our time and our effort, we need to give ourselves. Chapter 12 of the book of Romans is clear that, that I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's not asking us to do something unreasonable. He's asking us to do something that is quite within the realm of reasonableness. He wants us to give ourselves and to give ourselves first. And if we have a love that moves us, it will be a love that gives ourselves first and foremost. Have you given yourself to Jesus Christ without reservation? Do you find yourself withholding certain rooms in your heart, keeping back certain closets, I guess, if you will? Oh, you can have this area of my life and this area of my life and this area of my life, but I'm holding this one for me. you got to give yourself first. And you know, a love that moves us will cause us to give self. But not only that, but we learn as well from these brethren that a love that moves us will cause us to give sacrificially. Again, in verses 2 and 3, we noted that, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Although they were extremely poor, although they had been extremely affected by persecution even, they were giving of themselves liberally and generously, sacrificially. For to their power I bear you record, record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. They, they really did not have it to give, but they did anyway. See, our love will drive us to give beyond our ability, beyond our means. Let's be honest. Usually how this works is like this. We sit down at the kitchen table and we pull out our bank book and we pull out some paper and we start to add up the numbers, we go through our budget and we say, how much do I have for faith promise? How much can we afford to give? And let's be honest, that's how most handle this situation. What can I afford to give to God for the purpose of reaching the world with the gospel? So then we figure it out and we go away saying, well, this is all I can give. This is what I can do. Now, Lord, help me. Help me to know what to do. Why? You already came to a conclusion. You know, I'm always amazed when someone comes into my office and says something like this. Preacher, I've decided to do this. What do you think? Man, obviously, you've given it some thought. You go. You go, boy. You go, girl. What do you want me to do? Be the bad guy? I think it's a terrible idea. Huh? Huh? And then it's, but I already talked to my mom or dad, or I already talked to my wife or husband. I already talked to them. Well, then why are you coming to me last? Right. Come on. 
You know what? So many times we go to God that way. We've made up our mind. We've already discussed it. We've talked to our stockbroker. We've looked at the market. We've already figured out what we can and can't afford and how we can give or how we can't give. And then we go to God and say, oh, God, help me to give. Show me what you'd have me to do. I think we should have done that before we ever even looked at the finances. Someone says, yeah, that's not good stewardship. Well, it sure makes for good Bible practice. I mean, I'm just saying, here in this case, they didn't have it to give. Now, we can dispute whether or not you think it's wise or not to take that kind of step of faith. That's fine. We can debate that. We can talk about it. But we cannot debate, nor can we discuss whether or not they did it. They did. It's obvious. It's right in Scripture. See, what moves us? Is it an extra double cheeseburger from McDonald's? Listen, let me tell you something. They had on their app the other day, and I recommend you either get apps if you're going to go to these fast food restaurants, but they had on their app, you buy a double quarter pounder with cheese and you get a medium fry and a drink. Free. Yeah, I said free. (laughs) Do you know what I got? A double quarter pounder with cheese. Let me tell you something. That's a good sandwich. I like that sandwich. Now, you may not like it, but I like it a lot. But my question is this, what moves me? Is it really a double quarter pounder with cheese? And if you say, preacher, hey, I know you got one of those on your app today, and I do. I know you got one of those on your app today, and I want you to have that double. Here's the money for a double quarter pounder. I'd probably say, bless the Lord. (laughs) But let me ask you something. Should that be what moves me in my my walk with Christ, my life? whether or not I can have a double quarter pounder with cheese? Are you kidding me? It's only going to kill me anyway, right? I'll get to heaven faster. But it's not probably wise to let that be what moves me in my life. Is it really just a matter of a few extra hours of work? Is it a few dollars more for the budget? What moves me in my life? These believers... Oh, they had a love that moved them to give. And they gave sincerely. Interestingly enough, in verse 8, notice what our giving really does reflect. It says here in the passage, and um, I lost, uh, oh, there it is, okay. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the frowardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. What's he saying? He's saying our giving will testify of our love and it'll be proportionate to our love. Now, that's that's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? It's a tough thing to give sometimes. It's hard. It hits us where it really hurts if we're not exercising the gift of grace. It's tough. I bet you if I looked at, went over this crowd and if I took the time to go through the records and I really identified people that give in our church, I would venture to say there's a lot of people who could have bought a brand new car over the last five years. I say a lot. Let me just say a handful. A handful. But for that handful, I want to say that's some giving. However, I would probably imagine that may not be the case across the board. So it says, I don't have to give like that. I'm not, I'm not saying you do. But if you would go to people that give like that in this church, they don't give so that you will think they're spiritual because you don't know what they give. And can I be frank with you? Neither do I. I don't look at how much you give. I've made it a point a long time ago not to do that. The only thing I do is if you're going to be an adult Bible class leader or a Sunday school teacher, you're going to be in char- in a, a ministry in charge of a ministry here at Community Baptist, I want to know that you are tithing. Because if you're not tithing, you're probably on your way out the door. If you can't get the first thing straight, then you probably shouldn't be trying to teach somebody else how to be spiritual. Amen. Preacher, we love you for that. If 
finally let me just move on because we got to close we need a hope that moves us to gaze I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but would you just look over at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 real quick, and I'm going to give you the three points very quickly. I'm going to summarize this and just kind of fly right through it because of time. I've got three simple little thoughts that go with this, but notice this passage, a familiar passage and a powerful passage, one that's very, very encouraging for you and I today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. The Bible says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. I am so happy today to declare to you and from the word of God that those that are in Jesus Christ are simply sleeping. They are not dead. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15 For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That just means that we'll not go before them. They're going to be resurrected, then we'll follow. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And those are words of hope, are they not? I mean, we may have lost precious loved ones, but we know they're not dead, and we know they're coming back. and We know we're going to be once again assembled together with them. But we also know in this world in which we live, no matter how dark the days may become, keep our eyes on the sky. Because his return is imminent. So we need to gaze upward. We need to keep looking upward. The danger today in which we live, and it just seems like it's becoming more of a problem all the time to me, not just for me, I'm saying in our culture, in our world, is is this right here. We walk by sight. We keep our eyes focused on every turn, everything. We're trying to make sure we don't get tripped up, that we don't fall, that we don't mess up, but we're doing it in our own strength. Our gaze isn't upward, our gaze is outward and downward. It's the flesh, it's the temporal things that we're focusing our attention on. We're so distracted by everything going on around us. How many of you took the challenge the week before we had our revival and you didn't watch anything and the week of the revival you didn't listen to anything or you got off your Facebook and you got off of something. How many of you did that? Let me just see. How many of you tried to at least, tried to do a good job of it? Maybe you slipped up here and there. The majority, many of you did. Yeah, thank you. Very good. I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I, I don't know about you, but I haven't really spent the time looking at the news and things that I used to do. That, that, that helped me even to get away from some of that. Wasn't it amazing how different you felt not hearing all of that constantly and continually? Not being bombarded by this world and the things of this life and world? It's amazing. And what we find ourselves doing is we spend less time in God's word and more time on Facebook, more time on the things that are going on in this life. And we're only being more discouraged and just distracted than ever. Keep your gaze upward. Keep keep your eye upward, not just to watch for the return of Christ, but just be focusing on the spiritual realm. Then we need to gaze inwardly. Well, we need to check our life all the time and make sure that we're walking by faith and that we are living a life that's clean and pure and holy before a holy God. So we're, we need to gaze upward. We need to gaze inward. We need to gaze outward. Well, I'll tell you what, when We have a hope that moves us to gaze. It's going to force us to keep our eye upward, to focus on the sky, to focus on the return of Christ, as well as the eternal. It's also going to cause us to look at our life and evaluate us and evaluate our own objectives, our motives, and every other aspect of our life. And then it's going to cause us to gaze outward. There's going to be people that we walk through life and we see and we observe and we recognize that they're in need of Christ. 
People are dying, and if they don't have Jesus Christ, they're never going to make heaven. They're going to go to hell. We don't talk much about hell. It's not a very popular subject. It's not very pleasant, is it? But it is something that's as real as the seat you're sitting in. Gaze outward. What moves you tonight? We're talking about missions. What moves you? We're talking about souls. What moves you? Paul the Apostle said, none of these things move me. I'm headed to Jerusalem, and I know it's not going to be easy. I realize that I'm going to face opposition. I know that there's a good chance I can lose my life or be thrown into prison. But none of those things move me. All that matters to me is that I please the Lord Jesus Christ. All that matters are the souls of mankind. All that matters is that my ministry be fulfilled and that I honor the Jesus that saved my soul. He cared about others, and he was moved in a way that caused him to not care about material gain or even his own safety. What moves you? What moves me? Is the threat of inconvenience or discomfort keeping us from God's purpose and plan for our life? Well, that really put me out, you know. Really put me out. I mean, that Saturday program, is that's all great and all. And I know I used to come out every Saturday, but now, you know, I mean, it's just I've gotten used to not going. It'd be a bummer. I mean, the little kids or something, but, I mean, nothing's being accomplished anyway. It's a waste of my time. I got better things to do, like stay home and watch TV. Cut my grass. I hate cutting grass. Don't you hate cutting grass? And if you love it, you better give it up for Jesus. (laughs) I'm teasing. But don't tell me you love cutting grass and you got one of them zero turns that you sit on. You better love it while you're pushing it. Otherwise, there ain't nothing. Come on, that ain't even cutting grass with one of them things. Oh, man. If I had time, I'd tell you a story about my mower. But anyway, I mean, I I, I had to be the mower doctor last year, and I'm still working with it. But anyway, it's going, running like a champ. What moves you? What moves me? It ought to be a faith, a hope, and a love that moves us. May God help us to see the world in need as the Lord Jesus sees the world in need. And may we love them like he loves them. May we love them like he loved us. Let's do our best to have the right motivation and to be moved by the right things. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity we've had just to think about some simple truths, the idea of what moves us. We know the Apostle Paul, boy, he... He lived a difficult life. He faced many obstacles, and yet he continued. He was determined that no matter what, he was going to go to Jerusalem. No matter what, he was going to continue to give the gospel to a people in need. And Lord, help us, Father, to be willing to pay the price, to even sacrifice, to get it done. Not just, Father, not just financially. That's that's the least, Lord, but to give ourselves first, to not withhold any part of ourselves, our being, to give ourselves wholeheartedly without reservation to you. Lord, the rest of it will fall into place. May we exercise Romans 12. Apply it to our lives. We love you. We need you tonight. Lord, if there be any that are without you, may they trust and receive you tonight. May they just simply come forward, see myself at the front and take a moment allow someone to show them from the Bible how they can be saved. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. As the music plays, you come. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. Well, you better settle that first. That's a priority in your life. But then once you settle that, you've got to ask yourself, what moves me? What really motivates me? 
You know, we're really good about going to the teenagers that are getting ready to graduate and say, so what are you going to do with your life? First of all, can I encourage you to ask them what Jesus wants them to do with their life? That'd be a better question. We expect them and to have an idea of what's going to move them the rest of their days, what's going to motivate them, what, the, what are they going to do with it? Wait a second, what about us? What moves us? Is it a paycheck? Is it a relationship with a human being? Is it a position? Is it a level of education that moves us? Is it some kind of earthly success that moves us? Is it the pursuit of a talent or a job or some kind of venture that moves us? As believers, well, we ought to be moved by him, by the love of Christ. Then that love of Christ should cause us to love him. And then we ought to love what he loves, others. That's what ought to move us. Why hasn't the world been reached with the gospel? I don't think it's that hard to figure out, do you? It's probably because we're moved by so many other things than what we ought to be moved by. Eleven godly men, and then the apostle Paul shows up, reached the world with the gospel. I know the known world at that time was much smaller than it is now, but they also didn't have the means by which we have to reach the world. three, four day journey just to go from Miletus to Ephesus. That would take us no time at all. What moves us? What moves you? What moves me? for a baptism this evening, so you can be seated as the piano continues to play as they make preparations in the back. All right, this is Eden, Eden Spencer, and she's coming to be baptized after receiving and accepting Christ as her Savior. She says she's accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. That's exciting. Eden, we're going to baptize you, okay? Baptize, baptism doesn't save us. It's what we do in obedience to the Lord now that we are saved, okay? It's the first step of obedience. Eden, based upon your profession and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my sister, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 
You know what? I don't want to drop her. Can you have a seat right there? I just feel funny about this. I don't know why. Ready? You're going to be cold, I know. Here you go. You got it? I'll tell you what. Why don't you do that right there? <laughs> the water didn't get exactly as warm as we'd like. So even based upon your profession and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my sister, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death. Let's go straight back, okay, honey? Ready? Go. <laughs> Raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's freezing, isn't it? You did fabulous. You did so good. Go this way. Okay, there you go. All right. Amen. That's exciting. Watch that young one get baptized there. I know she was excited about accepting Christ as her Savior and excited about that first step of obedience. And if you've never taken it, I trust you'll do the same and uh, follow her example there. We need to all take that step of obedience. I just want to briefly go over um, this morning. We talked about our missions conference and how that lays out. And uh, every year we have a, a, a program for our children. And so I know this doesn't involve everybody, but it involves a, a lot of folks. And uh, up to 